Sharks aren't supposed to cry Or so the saying goes If tears fell from a shark eye How would you ever know? Welcome everybody to Exact Your Shark Week continues here in 2021, Ocean Week, whatever you want to call it. We are not affiliated with Discovery Channel. I have to throw that out just so I don't get a cease and desist. And if I do, any publicity is good. That's all I can say. We're here with Eric, Ellie, and joining us, our first shark expert from last year, the OG of the True Exact Show Shark Week, Miss Catherine McDonald. How are you doing? How are you? It's great to be here. Yes, it's awesome. I know it took some time for us to coordinate, but finally we got together and we are ready to ask you some questions. I have one personally because I know over the past year you actually got a grant uh, and you were out there exploring. So tell us about how that came to be. Uh, so one of the least fun parts of being a scientist is applying for funding to do science. So that's like one of the fundamental tasks that I think none of us like i mean feel free to bring someone on here who disagrees with me but i don't i don't know who that is um but i feel very fortunate that nat geo funded some of our research on shark nursery areas this year so um it's been really cool and exciting to to get to work with them to start ramping up some of the work we're doing putting acoustic tags in juvenile sharks um, to look at how they use habitat and how that changes as they age. So basically, they start out in a smaller area and then get braver and expand outward as they're a little bit bigger and a little bit less afraid of being eaten. Nice. So now, excuse my like, um, uh, what is ignorance on the subject? Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, that's pretty solid. Uh, a shark nursery. What exactly is it? Yeah. So. Uh, sort of in the same way that we would think of, of kids as at different developmental stages needing different things. So preschool is different in location and in what you're doing than high school. Uh, sharks, when they're small babies, often have specific habitats that they rely on. For a lot of species, those are mangroves or sometimes seagrass beds, places that tend to be a little bit more shallow and are less likely to also host the big sharks that might like to make a meal out of a small shark. Mm. So how do you get these smaller sharks? Do you go out there and catch them? Like, how do you know where the smaller ones are? So uh, a lot of science is, I'm, I'm not going to say the word, but effing around and finding out. Um, We're very so PG on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what youths are listening to you. You're right. You're right. Go on. Uh, Not many people are. So. <laughs> uh, same. Uh, but so some of it is just looking at the characteristics of a location and saying, well, hey, this looks like some pretty good habitat. Let's put some hooks in the water and see what happens. And for us, for nursery areas, those are mostly smaller hooks, right? We use scientific long lines. Um, with fairly small hooks that are designed to hopefully target and catch those younger, smaller bodied sharks to get a sense of what habitat is important to them. Uh, for a lot of big sharks that make long range migrations like tiger sharks, like great hammerheads, uh, if when they're young, they're really attached to a particular location, one of the best ways you can protect them is by protecting those important places. 
because it's very difficult to protect as an adult sharks that might travel thousands of miles and cross many uh, international boundaries. Mm -hmm. cool. Now, when you got the grant, sorry, Eric, when you got the grant, do you have to present all that like in a paper? This is what we want to do. This is okay. That's yeah, no, I, so my students are like, oh, I want your job when I grow up. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you see the part of my job that is grabbing sharks and teaching in a classroom, but probably 85% of it is writing papers, writing grants, analyzing data. You know, it's, um, it's not that I don't love my job, but I think the parts of it that are photogenic and the parts of it that I spend the most time on, meh. Right. Yeah. This time of year we're in the field, so that's nice. Yeah. It's like, I remember when we did home ec in high school. I love cooking, but the classes we didn't cook, I hated it. You know, it wasn't my cup of tea, as they say. So I, I think it's the same thing. Right? The same exact thing. <laughs> I was going to ask, is there, is there like an age or a size if it, the shark is too young where you have to throw them back? So every single shark that I work with is getting thrown back. They've just got about three minutes of alien probing before that happens okay. where we're taking some quick measurements and a couple little samples. Um, but every single animal that we work with is released alive. Um, okay. But uh, yes, there are size limits for a lot of fish and sharks for commercial catch of them. Mm -hmm. uh, permitted scientific research. Sometimes the rules are a bit different, uh, but I don't personally do lethal research, not because I don't think that, it's important or worthwhile because we've learned a lot from lethal research. But if I'm collecting samples that I need from a dead shark, I'd rather collaborate with fishers who are using those animals for other purposes and try to get the samples I need from them. Wow. And when, and when you get a grant, so you said it's your grant, how many people are involved in it? Like, are you just like the, the head person of it and then you pick your own team and do all that? It varies a lot. So people don't necessarily realize this because it's not, I mean, who, I, I can't believe you guys are asking me about grant making, like, who's, who's really dying to know about the inner I, I am, honestly. Obviously, I, I, these I, two jabronis, for whatever yeah. reason. I have, I have actual shark-related questions. <laughs> I have shark questions, just to your I way, have so. to say, Eric, two of your best questions ever, by the way. Thank you. And I have another one. I'm just <laughs> gearing them up. Gearing them up. Go ahead. But what I would say is, you know, in the media, you're like, oh, this scientist made this discovery. But science yeah. is always a team sport. So there are some grants that I'm what scientists generally call the PI on, the principal investigator, which mm -hmm. usually means that I'm the main point person on that grant. And even if I'm not doing all the work myself, I'm like organizing the rest of the team. Uh, and then there are other grants where I'm a kind of backup player and somebody else is, is leading the team. And then they're saying, hey, Catherine, can you come in and look at this particular aspect of the data or can you write this part of the paper and I'm just helping out. So um, I think a, a good scientist is happy to play both roles at different times and for different projects and uh, yeah. without a really amazing team that I work with, I would be able to accomplish a very small fraction of what I do. Yeah, nice. very humble. And then my other question was because like I'm, I've, I've experienced like budget, budgeting and all that. Do you have to think about that? Like, let's say you get, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollar grant. Are do you have to be like, okay, well, this boat trip is ten thousand dollars. Like, okay, I can only do nine, or I could do it. Like, are you who's helping making sure you're not going over the grant? 
Yeah. So there's a long list of things that scientists are expected to do that nobody teaches us how to do. Mm. Um, and in a lot Person. of cases, that, yeah. that includes <laughs> things like management of your team, of any employees, any lab managers, all that kind of stuff, management of your students, uh, sometimes teaching. Uh, my PhD program didn't gave me opportunities to practice teaching, but didn't actually require that any, I take any classes on teaching even okay. though as a PhD, a lot of my work is teaching students. Um, wow. And budgeting is, I would say, a part of that. Um, the good news, bad news for us is that in general, granting agencies are giving you a set amount and that's the money that you have. And if you screw it up, that's a problem for you to solve. Uh, so you don't have the kind of overages that you might in a corporation where, you know, oh crap, we screwed up and we're spending, you know, half again as much money as we intended to. Mm -hmm. You just run out of money and then you have to, you know, either alter your goals in a way that lets you complete the grant with what you have done already or uh, be really awkward and embarrassed with your granting agency. Thankfully, this one has not happened to me. <laughs> yeah. And do they, are they all connected? Because like, let's say you have this great idea for a grant and unforeseen circumstances, maybe you blew over your budget or they said, all right, we're, you're not getting any more money. Here you go. And you're like, I can't do anything with this. So it's kind of lost. Does that kind of tarnish the scientist's reputation for other grants? Is there like a community or can you just go to like, an, like TD Bank, shut your car down so you go to Wells Fargo? I would say it's probably somewhere in between. Like they're not necessarily directly coordinating, at least as far as I know. Mm -hmm. um, but your reputation in general is going to affect your chances, you know, your scientific reputation. And so if you are kind of establishing yourself as a person who talks big and doesn't deliver, um, that may not catch up with you immediately, but it's probably going to catch up with you at some point. Yeah. We'll get to Ellie. You asked the first shark question. I just quickly have to say, if I was a budget manager, hundred grand, I would blow it immediately. I would buy like a golden rod, like a golden fish. You'd just ball. buy a bunch of food. Shut up. Right. You'd buy I'd, a bunch of food. I'd a golden it. shark chain for $100,000. <laughs> yeah, right. I can't write much about this. <laughs> a singing it rubber doesn't fish. Float. <laughs> it doesn't float. We know that. It doesn't float. So yeah. Go well, on. Most of them, you're submitting a budget in advance before they give you the money. Oh. <laughs> uh, so you'd have, you know, I mean, I encourage you to submit a golden shark chain <laughs> research budget, but um, they, you know, there's some expectation that you're going to spend it more or less how you said you're going to spend it. I want to see how fast I get robbed. That's my research. It's going to be more of like a sociology experiment, but that's okay. <laughs> Ellie, go on. Do some short. Okay. So I don't know, maybe this, if this is your realm, but why are some sharks, or not why are, why do some sharks live birth and some are, you know, egg birth or whatever what how come some sharks do that is that like a evolutionary thing is that more advantageous for certain species of sharks to do that or you know because some of them have to like come out and get out and go you know some of the pups you know they fight in the womb in which everyone lives is the one that gets born um <laughs> it's the sharky sharp world out there pun intended um but yeah what is it is there any reason why certain species do um live birth and certain species don't or is it just that's just how it is for them yeah it's, it's a great question so my answer is yeah. going to be annoying because I'm a scientist, so sorry. But no, I'm a science person too, so go for it. Annoying. I, I didn't even know there was two separate birthing uh, things with sharks, so go on. We've got, we've got at least three. 
right? Okay. We've, got, we've got vivipary, right? You're giving birth to live young that are attached to mom by an umbilical cord and a placenta. You've got aplacental vivipary, uh, which used to right. be called ovovivipary. And that's yes, where mom's that's the one. laying Dive eggs it. into her uh, own uteri and they're hatching there and the pups are developing inside, but they're not directly connected to mom. And you've got fully egg-laying species where they're laying an egg out in the wild and leaving it to do what it does and hope for the best. Um, and I think that the, the like simplest answer here is that you can think about the process of evolution as the process of solving problems to optimize for your circumstances, right? And sharks have been around for more than 400 million years. They're, they've had a lot of time to experiment and to arrive at all of these different solutions. And so you see this incredible diversity in sharks and in their relatives that I think has to do with having had a lot of time to get it right in a lot of different environments and in a lot of different ways. So for each of those species, what they're doing is, you know, what evolution has determined is most successful and works faster. Sure. But, okay. um, you know, it, it depends on a whole range of habitat and evolutionary lineage sure. and all that kind of stuff. But I agree with sure. you that shark reproduction is one of the coolest. Mm. It is. Yeah. Like three different ways. And in, in again, the one, which, which species is it where they, you know, fight it out inside the womb? Uh, is that tiger sharks? Okay. Very uh, cool. I mean, well, not cool. And there's some but... evidence that maybe a couple other species do similar. Ah, okay. Mm. What one of my colleagues calls interuterine thunderdome. Hell yeah. That's amazing. Okay. But speaking of like shark pups, have you ever, do you ever, um, I guess, have you ever caught like a pregnant female and like, then what do you, do you study those or how does that work? Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm going to hop back for a second just cause I'm really excited about shark reproduction. Sorry. Um, but cool point to make here is that if you're not connected to mom in the uterus, then she's got to feed you and she's got to create oh. an environment where you can grow without that connection. Right. Mm. So oh, with that right. placental connection, mom's food and energy and blood is all circulating through. Uh, she's managing your like toxin buildup, all that kind of stuff. But when you're not connected, you've got to solve that problem other ways. So actually as their pups oh. mature, dogfish like exchange their, the fluid inside their bodies with seawater to help keep the womb oxygenated enough for the pups to breathe. Um, where white sharks have these really crazy walls of their uterus that allow them to sort of force uh, oxygen from their blood into that fluid so that their pups can breathe. Um, and all of those species, even those that are ram ventilators as adults, right? Adult sharks that would have to swim all the time to breathe they have to be able to do something else in the womb, right? You can't have 20 pups swimming around inside you, smashing into each other. And, um, and so like manta rays, for instance, we know in the womb are buccal pumping, right? They're using muscles to force water over their gills, even though once they're born, they start ram ventilating. And as far as I know, they never buccal pump again once they're really? born. Really? Interesting. Wow. That is so cool. I can't believe we've never touched on 
Shark reproduction. I don't think in any of the you're episodes. Welcome. So I you're thank welcome. you, Ellie. So <laughs> I am. I am gonna continue and ask a question now. Are they? At, oh, go on. Go on. Go on. Okay. So one more cool one. If you think about it, right? Like you've got this fluid inside the uterus. Pups are living in it. Right. Mom's feeding pups uh, sometimes with unfertilized eggs. Sometimes they're eating their siblings. Sometimes, you know, in some rays, their mom's producing interuterine milk, which doesn't have a lot in common Whoa. with mammalian milk, but it is like nutrient rich. Um, but then, okay, you don't have that placental connection to get energy from mom. She's providing you with energy. How are you getting rid of wastes? Hmm. And oh, yeah. the answer for at least some species is they literally hold it till they're born. Their oh, entire gestation, and then they just like everything out once they're born. Imagine being behind that shark. Oh, yep, just like mass <laughs> evacuation of everything. Oh, gosh. Well, and then you start thinking about like, okay, this is like a little stingray, right? What percentage of its body weight is poop when it's born? It's yeah. got to be significant. Yeah, we should have another week called Shark Week, and it's all about this. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I, my, my question was, how does the mom uh, monitor the, uh, what would you say it was? Um, I'm throwing off on my hilarious joke. Um, uh, the, the toxins. How, how does she monitor the toxins? No idea. I mean, there's tons of cool stuff that they're doing that we don't know how. You know, I mean, we know female sharks can store sperm for a significant period of time before becoming pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. And we can tell you where they store it, right? But we can't, I, I can't tell you how they decide or how they make that happen or what makes them decide like, okay, now's a good time. Let's wow. get pregnant. Now, are they connected to their uh, newborns or they don't care? You know, like lion cubs will like protect like, theirs. Are they altricial? They don't care at all. They're just... So, so some, you know, if you're an egg layer, right? You're trying to find a good spot for your egg. And a lot of those eggs kind of attach to rocks or um, corals or whatever to try to hopefully wedge it down in a crevice or something somewhere where it's not going to get eaten. So that's some parental care. But really, the big favor a mother shark does her pups is when she's giving birth, uh, she secretes hormones that suppress her appetite so that she's not tempted. Oh, um, oh. So like eat her kids, eat? basically. Yep. But that's, that's really it. For most shark species, mom gives birth and then she's and off doing her own thing. Wow. Little sharks are born knowing exactly how to shark. They head out into the world really well equipped to, to start doing the job from day one. You know, with a few exceptions, I've seen some pretty uh, derpy sharks immediately after birth while they're still figuring out swimming, right. but they get it pretty quick. Uh, how long can a shark give birth to like age-wise? Is there like a cutoff where they stop? Or is it like a, a human cycle? It, it varies a lot because sharks are really diverse, right? More than 500 species, you know, ranging in size from fits in the palm of your hand to size of a school bus. Um, so a wide range. Um, but up until recently, we thought that the frilled shark was actually the vertebrate animal with the longest gestation. Uh, they're three and a half years mm -hmm. for their pups, which is a good long time. Um, and, you know, I, I would say in general, sharks can become pregnant and give birth throughout their lifespan as long as their health is good. Um, 
shark lifespan varies a lot. There's some that are just a couple of years um, up to, you know, I mean, you've got some extreme outliers like the Greenland shark where it might be 500 years that they can live. But um, the average sharks that I work with here in South Florida are in the 40, 50 years of age kind of average pretty pretty clearly with the exception of some of the smaller ones who may live shorter lifespans five years ten years now this might be a stupid question can you tell how old they are kind of like a tree with its rings how do you tell yeah so you have hit the nail right on the head Uh, Uh. to age sharks historically uh you would cut and stain their vertebrae right you you'd lethal sample a shark you'd cut the vertebrae you'd stain it and you'd count the rings uh, because I did not know that I did not look that up. I swear to God, that is just a phenomenal job by me. Amazing. Thank because you. they, you know, during the summer months when food is typically more abundant, right? You're eating more, you're growing more. Um, th- you'll deposit a growth ring mm. uh, around that season. And so you can count those uh, rings to estimate age. It doesn't work perfectly for all sharks, but it is a common way of doing it. Thankfully, um, historic lethal sampling means that for an awful lot of species, we kind of have done that already and can say, well, a uh, five foot long of this species is about seven years old. And so I don't need to do that to roughly age the animals right. that I catch. Cool. All right. I, I you can, will also, you can also say something about age and maturity uh, in males from their claspers. So the male sexual organs are a a paired set of claspers on either side of the male's cloaca on the underside. Um, and as they age, you know, when they're juveniles, you have these like really tiny little soft, flexible nubs. And as they age, they get much longer and they start to calcify uh, and they'll get quite hard. So you can kind of judge whether a male that's approaching maturity has fully matured or not by feeling the claspers and how calcified they are. Nice. Ellie, any more scientific questions that we haven't touched on you want to ask? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah. Do any sharks have swim bladders, or is that strictly just not like skates, rays, and sharks? Or do, like, even rays or skates have swim bladders, or none of them? Yeah, no. uh, Swim bladders are pretty much a teleos thing, a bony fish thing. It's a very helpful adaptation. Um, But sharks have tried to kind of come at the same problem uh, with those big oil-rich livers that ah, okay. reduce how much they weigh. I mean, and sure. they're fortunate to cartilage is lighter than bone. Right. So pound for pound, they tend to be a little bit lighter. Uh, okay. The only okay. shark I'm aware of that's able to kind of hang motionless in the water and do that negative buoyancy thing is the sand tiger. And they do it by oh. swallowing air into the stomach rather than having a swim bladder. So what, what exactly is a swim bladder? Sorry. You know, uh, yeah, doctor. great question. <laughs> uh, so what ecologists call teleost fishes, which is just a fancy way of saying bony fishes, okay. uh, have a gas-filled organ inside their body that's sort of just like a balloon, right? And so when they go deeper, the gas in that balloon compresses, so they mm-hmm. add more gas to it to hold themselves neutrally buoyant so that they don't sink to the bottom or float to the surface. Um, If you've ever seen like a fishing video or something where the fish has like inflated while it was Mm -hmm. being brought up from depth, Mm -hmm. what's happened is called barotrauma. And it's, it's that, that fish was brought to the surface so rapidly 
that the gas that was under pressure at a deeper depth expanded inside the swim bladder and inflated the fish a little bit like a balloon. Now, if that's like, would that be the equivalent of like a major artery on a human if it got punctured? Like, does that like, would that kill them? Like, that's a huge effect? No, thankfully, fish are fortunate in that if you have the right tool, you know, which is basically just a, an appropriate weighted way to return them to depth, that gas will deflate again. Uh, you could potentially rupture it if you had an extreme enough event. Um, but the average fish that's being caught in 100 or 110 feet of water is probably not going to be so severely injured, uh, again, depending on the individual fish and how fast you're bringing it to the surface. Um, but they can recover well from those injuries. Uh, we uh, caught a Goliath grouper uh, on our one of our fishing rigs last week, which we obviously didn't want to or intend to do. Um, and it it was slightly inflated, but not so much that it couldn't sort of turn around and swim back down. So as soon as it got a little bit deeper, the gas in that bladder is going to um, be compressed by the pressure of the water. Nice. Mm. I'm learning about swim bladders and shark reproduction, stuff we it, haven't learned. It's the same idea if you, if you, any of you scuba dive or any of our listeners scuba dive, you can't take a breath from your tank at depth and then head for the surface because that gas is under pressure at depth, right? So it would expand on your way up and damage your lungs. I didn't know that. I've never been scuba diving, nor will I probably ever go, but now I know. They'll never fly you, and dive, right? They'll teach never you to breathe out the whole way up so yeah. that you don't. Yeah, it's too, you know, that's too risky for me. What is <laughs> I, is that, God doesn't leave his basement is what we're getting at here. <laughs> when, you're, when you go up too fast, right? Is that what that is you're talking about? Yeah, you get the bends. Are we talking about the same thing? Yes and no. So they're related problems, but a lung overexpansion injury from gas expanding in your lungs um, is different from gas bubbles in your blood expanding, which is what uh, happens. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a specific shark uh, that you haven't studied yet that you haven't caught that you're really like itching to study? Like that, you know, that's the, that you know is near where you're fishing and doing your work, but you just like haven't gotten one yet. Um, I mean, so many. Right. I obviously want to see all the sharks, mm -hmm. but um, you know, we we they caught or reported a cookie cutter down in Key West uh, a couple weeks ago. I would love to see one of those. They're never going to take my baits or my hooks. Those little round mouths are not made for what mm. I'm fishing with, but that's one that I would really love to see someday. Um, you know, we get reports of tons of cool stuff uh, yeah. that we just don't tend to catch. Um, in more than 10 years working in South Florida, I've caught a great white one time. Um, so, you know, thanks to O-Search and their satellite tagging and, you know, their public information tools, you know, we can be like, oh yeah, there are great whites around here, but they don't really come inshore to where we mostly fish. And my gear is made to target smaller than that animals. Uh, 
you got to get in touch with Paul Clerkin. He does all those cookie-cutter shark and ghost shark things on Alien Sharks. We've had him on like three times. I've actually been trying to get him to name a shark after me for a year, and he really hasn't even budged. So Not receptive. Not receptive. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. I even wore a sweater with my face on it one episode. So, like, maybe you could see, like, what it would represent, you know? Yeah, a serial killer. Deep sea shark. <laughs> Th- thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, again. exactly. Serial killer. No, so, Catherine, can you say that again? Just because no, don't do, awesome. don't do it. Don't Please. do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, she's a true exact deep sea shark. That no, she beautiful. didn't. It absolutely is beautiful. I do have other questions. I'll pass it to someone though. If you guys have any. Go ahead, Scott. Yes. Oh, you want to go, Eric? No, I said go ahead. Okay. Um, okay. So I know you're in South Florida. It, uh, the sharks behave differently depending upon where they are in the world, like Atlantic versus Pacific, you know, Southern Hemisphere versus Northern Hemisphere. I mean, obviously, like, the Greenland shark and, you know, Pacific sleeper shark are going to move slower because they're in super cold water and, you know, all that stuff. But is our behavior patterns and, like, eating patterns, like, you know, with whales, they have, like, different hunt- ways of hunting depending upon where they are in the world. So I just wondering if shark behavior was like that, too, was kind of regional or geographical Base. Yeah, West West Coast sharks are real chill. Uh, Northeast hey. <laughs> sharks are just real uptight. Sorry, keep going. real aggressive, really. Aggressive, yeah, real aggressive. Rude, mad. Yeah, rude. sorry. Yeah, I'm mean, talking about people here. <laughs> I, I I don't know of like definitive science that would say like this population of the same species behaves differently in a different okay. place. You'd see some, you know local adaptations if that makes sense sure, sure of course of the, course like resources are better or right. uh, but not that i know of is the short answer okay. with the longer okay. answer kind of being that um a, th- there's a lot that we know about behavior that relates to environment and life history characteristics and so we can like identify some general trends uh sure. you know deep sea sure. species tend to be long-lived with very slow metabolisms. Uh, Cold water species tend to be on average uh, a bit faster, more powerful uh, than warmer water species, in part at least because they need to deal with colder waters and they have access to sometimes higher fat diets, seals, whales, uh, dolphins. Uh, Most of the sharks that I catch are, you know, fish eaters. So, you, we definitely do see regional differences in that way. Sure. Okay. But it's not like significant. Like I'm sure you've heard about those orcas <laughs> in South America that beach themselves to hunt. And they're the only pot of orcas in the world that do that. So I just wondering if, you know, sharks were on that level, but the, but the, you know, the adaptations to your environment, that makes sense. Like, you know, Oh, we hunt this way. Cause it's, you know, easier to feed on these fish over here with like the, you know, the great kelp forests we have over here in the Pacific. So. I mean, and there's sense. cool research that shows that sharks can learn from walk, watching each other. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, so I would expect that if one shark came up with a cool hunting strategy or, you know, even when we think about fishermen who have like great fishing spots who say the sharks show up here to eat my food, like mm-hmm. some part of that is learning from each other, learning from past experience and saying like, oh, hey, this place is a good place to get a free meal. That's why you'll find them around bait tables. That's why you'll find them around popular fishing spots. Wow. Cool. Now, what's the main um, cause for uh, – no, actually, I have another question. Is there any evolutionary thing you guys have found the past 10 years, 20 years in sharks that, like, is very, like, 
mind open, mind blowing that like that they evolved from doing? Is there any specific thing? I mean, sharks blow my mind like every day. Right, but like, oh wow! In the past twenty years, they actually grew this or learned this. Is there anything or no? Uh, I mean, they don't change that fast. Sharks of today are pretty similar to sharks of a few hundred years ago, oh. a thousand years ago. Uh, evolution is definitely like a long time scale thing. Um, I think we see some some sharks changing their uh, behavior in response to changes that we're creating. Uh, so animals that might historically have specialized, right? There's, there's pretty strong evidence that tiger shark teeth evolved in part to take them right through turtle shells. Oh. Uh, and we know that sea turtles were incredibly abundant in the Caribbean, you know, sort of pre contact with Europeans and Europeans showed up and were like, wow, turtles are easy to catch and delicious. Let's eat all of these. Um, and so, you know, tiger sharks, because if you have saws for teeth, yeah, sure, they're good at going through turtle shell, but they're good at going through pretty much anything. Yeah, uh, Tiger sharks have been able to like pretty effectively broaden their diet to eat whatever. And, you know, I, I don't know how broad their diets were beforehand obviously none of us really do but um i think they're an example of you know without necessarily changing in an in evolutionary terms adapting to a new environment and they eat anything i've had them throw up vulture feathers on me before hmm. um i one of my colleagues had one throw up a big stone claw crab a uh, stone crab claw and a turtle beak uh, and there's a paper actually on the fact that they turn up around migratory pathways and eat songbirds that get too tired on their migration and fall into the ocean. That's so <laughs> <laughs> It's not funny, but it's kind of funny. But <laughs> a poor bird. <laughs> yeah, the paper has, like, the pictures of the, like, partially digested warbler. Um, I'm just going to take a little break for a second. I'll come back up. What happened to him? There's Reggie. <laughs> Have you ever seen, like they do in the movies, like in Jaws, have you ever seen the license play? Or no, that's never happened. Well, so, no, I've never seen anything like that. I, I haven't. The main, like, human-related object that I come across working with sharks is fishing gear. Uh, so we'll take recreational fishing hooks out of their jaws sometimes. Uh, we had one we caught this year where the hook had caught kind of on his flank, um, but then it, it had a bunch of wire leader on it, and every time he moved his tail, the wire leader had, like, cut into his tail, and it had sawed about a third of the way through his upper tail. Um, so I was glad we could take that gear off for him because he's definitely better off without it. Yeah, um, that sounds horrible. But uh, in terms of eating exciting things, I have not seen a. I have not seen them puke up human stuff personally. Damn but it. I, no body parts. Where they do sometimes. So <laughs> like no fingers, no toes, Definitely no not. feet. Damn it. Okay. Yeah, it's very rare that sharks eat people, Ellie. I don't know if you accidents know. also happen. And license a... plates. <laughs> not many cars <laughs> around there. Yeah. You know, many cars in the ocean, but that's okay. <laughs> well, and I, I don't think that license plates do like as good of an impression of food as some other human trash. Like a human on a surfboard or something. I mean, or 
stuff like plastic bags where marine animals will mistake them for jellyfish. Uh, yes. Awesome. They, so they eat jellyfish. Do they get stung when they eat it or no? Like, does that? Uh, so I don't know whether, I mean, tiger sharks eat a lot of stuff. So yeah. it surprised me if they hadn't tried it. Uh, but I was thinking more of sea turtles who love to eat jellyfish mm. uh, and have some specialized adaptations to make sure that that doesn't bother them too much. Good for them. Sorry, go on, Ellie. Okay, so since you're in southern Florida, does the destruction of the mangrove forest, does that mess up any of your research? Like, is that, do those act as shark nurseries for some of the sharks you're studying? Or um, is that part of your conservation? What not like, stop destroying the mangrove forest. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, how does that affect your research? And is that also a part of it, too, like conservation of mangroves? <laughs> so the good news is that mangroves are pretty well protected in Florida. And the bad news is that that doesn't mean that bad things aren't happening to them. Right. Um, so some of that is, is development and mangroves being cleared for, you know, resorts or for people's houses. Oh, to I have need my mansion oh, in Key West. Uh. Yeah. Yep. So there's a certain <laughs> amount of, of that for certain. Actually, one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Christine Stump, did her PhD research in Bimini in the Bahamas, but just across Ooh. the Gulf Stream from us here in South Florida. And what she was looking at was mangrove clearance associated with resort development there. Uh, that site is one of the most famous nurseries for lemon sharks uh, in the world. Oh, no. And what she found was that in areas where they cleared mangroves and replaced it with a seawall, uh, adult female lemon sharks still came to the same location to give birth, uh, even though now it was a seawall and not mangroves and that shark pups born next to a seawall did not fare quite as well as shark pups born near healthy mangroves, even though very luckily um, they, they have some ability to adapt. Uh, you know, it's not like no survivors from seawall batch. Uh, right. Just had to work a little harder to, to make it work. Seems like right. sharks have gotten used to the idea that humans are just pieces of garbage to an extent, and they keep just trekking along. Like, yeah, we'll adjust, but can you please stop? Like, that's kind of what it seems like they're saying, you know? I mean, they've survived all of these mass extinction events, and I think that if we give them even a little bit of opportunity, they'll survive us too. But yeah. uh, we, we don't always make it easy. Right, I agree. Uh, Catherine, you've been more. Uh, this we could get to our final segment if you want. Uh, Ellie, you have anything? Eric, I'm good. Mm, I'm sure. Of course, I'll think of a gajillion more questions <laughs> once we're, especially on shark reproduction, once you're gone. But that's okay. Catherine, <laughs> I have to say, I saw my aunt Patty uh, two days ago, and she actually said, "Are you guys doing shark stuff again?" And I said, "Yes, we're working. We got some people coming on." She actually specifically said, "Do you have Cat coming on again?" Swear to God, that happened. And uh -huh. I, was like, I was like, "Oh yeah, we got her coming on on Monday." She goes, "I love Cat. I follow her. Uh, your episode with her was amazing." So you do have a fan up here in New Jersey who is looking forward to this. Thank you so much, Aunt Patty. Yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not give her too much credit. You know, we don't want to like blow her head up and whatnot. Oh, no, but it's your aunt, our one listener, your aunt. That's <laughs> yeah. 
The one following we have is not is for our guest. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Doesn't even That's care about funny. any of us. So, all right, so, uh, Catherine, last time we did this gun to your head segment, I was the winner. There's no more – there's no pressure. We actually cut it down from five questions to two. So it's two questions each. So, you know, people have two questions. I've been working on this all day. But I, th- I like my chances. So you know how it works. Uh, two questions each, little wordplay involve you pick a winner at the end. So I will start this, okay? Would you rather be mayor for one year where you live or only listen to John Mayer for a year? Oh. Um, question. Yeah. That sound terrible. It, it's, I'm going to have a tough year as the mayor of Miami, but I'm, I'm going to do my best. All right. Gotcha. Citizens deserve my care. <laughs> right. Jeez, treat I him like your sharks. I didn't treat know people like sharks. didn't like John. I mean, I think he's okay, but all right, teach. So. He's great. <laughs> Eric, nothing but the same music for a year. Yeah, but I mean, he has a lot of songs. I mean, so it's one big exhale. <laughs> <laughs> um, I literally, I only know I think two. So I was envisioning having to listen to just those <laughs> songs. <laughs> Gotcha. Good choice change, then. If you could change one of these to quarterly, every quarter, what would it be? Shark Week or celebrating your birthday? Mm. <laughs> we came to play tonight, Catherine. So solid questions. Yeah, this one's hard because I actually really don't like people paying attention to me. So my birthday is not my thing. Um, or that, but also there's a weird mix of like, I love shark week because for one week every year, everybody wants to talk to me about the thing I want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is not true the rest of the year. Yeah. But then people also come back and are like, so Megalodon's not extinct. Right. And I'm like, you're in it. Yeah. Right. Oh, uh, we like, okay. how many times do we need to go over this one? <laughs> I get that question. I would say 90% of the time when I give a public talk. <laughs> Boo. So what would you rather do? I'm going to have a very awkwardly secretive birthday four times a year. <laughs> okay. See, there if I go. chose that, I would have made it a big birthday bash four times. Everyone would have known it's my birthday. But you're, but you're very clearly quarter. a lot more fun than I am. Wait, does that because mean I have to you're in four times? No, no, no. That's why I said, I'm, I'm like, Scott, I'm 35 and a quarter. I'm 35 and a half. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I could do yeah. that. Yeah. Mostly not would, 35, but okay. Yeah, you would shorten your life. You're right, you're 70. But <laughs> anyways. Ellie? Okay, so this isn't really a would you rather, but if you could ethically and soundly keep a pet shark, which one would it be? I mean, and it's going to be the shark's going to be happy no matter what it is. And it's, yes, it the, has all of its needs met. It's not in some tank. It's in like, you know, one of those ocean, uh, habitats, essentially like that. They put the dolphins in captivity into like those Harbor habitats or whatever. So it, I mean, it's basically like it's in its own little mini ocean, but it's all of its needs are met. It's happy. It's thriving, but it's your pet shark. Which one, which species would you pick? Perfect world scenario. So you don't have to feel guilty about it. <laughs> oh, this is so hard. Oh, this is so hard. Um, Fine, top two. Okay. Then I'm going to have a little juvenile nurse shark because they're super cute and they're very chilled <laughs> so out. Cute. 
and I feel like I, I feel like we could vibe and I, I, I don't know because you know, I'm, part of me is like tiny Mako and then they're like a buddy team, yes. mm. right? But then also, I'm not sure that they would actually get along. But I mean, this is my weird fantasy. So sure, they're a buddy. It's a perfect team. world. So they're so, so they could be like, you know, it could be like, uh, what's his face, Black Panther and Winter Soldier. You know, like you could have that kind of thing going on. Batman and Robin. Batman situation. and Robin. I mean, I already said Batman and Robin. We don't need to repeat it. I, said, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody saw it coming, but they're best friends now. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Here, here we go. A solid first round of questions, by the way, fellas and lady. Very, very solid first. So, would you rather have your dentist attempt to be your doctor or your doctor attempt to be your dentist? I'm going to go with doctor attempt to be my dentist because I fortunately have quite good teeth and I'm like very militant about flossing. Oh. So, I feel like the at least the short-term consequences would be lower. Okay, it's fair. Fair, Eric. Okay. Uh, for one year, would you either have to write a grant for that whole year or be President Ulysses S. Grant? Um, <laughs> do I have to be him now or can I be right him now? now? <laughs> you decide right now. You're going to write a grant for a whole year or you have to go be him back in the back day. In okay, okay. So it's not like you have to just like be the corpse of Ulysses S. Grant, which <laughs> oh, is no, that'd what be disgusting. he's doing lately. You'd yeah. essentially win the war for the Union. Like, well, I wonder what would be funny if she just became him now and walked around like she was him, like the president was like, what the hell? <laughs> like in a Union soldier outfit and everything. We and gave like this lady the rotting off. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, and just like do my normal job, but in a whole <laughs> yeah. Ulysses You're on the boat in a suit, in a three-piece suit with a little cigar. Yeah. And rotting skin, definitely like the rotting skin for sure. Oh no. Yeah, no okay. rotting skin. You're alive. No, come on. He's yeah. not I get to be alive. Um, I mean, I guess I'm gonna go with writing a grant as part of my normal job, but also if I'm if, if the question is like which would I choose writing the grant. If it's which would be more fun and more hilarious, uh definitely my dressing as Ulysses F. Grant. Yes, you should do that. Once this releases, <laughs> have a release party when we air this and just dress up like that. Like, you'll see. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, you have to talk in that time, too, though. I feel like you'd have to talk for that era yeah. as well. I've got really some friends it. who are decent with Photoshop, so you may have a me as your list says Grant coming your way. I've got uh, you. And there's Ellie, your Halloween costume. Ellie, you got another one or no? Yes. Okay. Um, if you could, no, um, no. Okay. Pygmy shark or pygmy hippo? Just pick one. to eat what am i doing no with it? no you, you get to if you just pick what would you rather have or what, what which as one a, would you like more i mean i'm an extremely biased audience here the pygmy hippos are very cute but always shark always shark are, are there any pygmy sharks i mean yes i mean there are sharks with pygmy in their name and there are sharks that are very small okay okay all right, Catherine. Now this is this is a solid round, so you have to pick your favorite question. It's I'm I'm so sorry, but it's going to Eric because oh, Ulysses so. S. Grant. Crap. Oh, yeah. that's so annoying because I thought I had that. Now what we also like to do in the past year since you've come on, we like to shame people. So we okay. need you to pick your least favorite question. <laughs> 
so we can make fun of the person. It could be mind killing. Hmm. Hmm. You could give it to Eric, and he could have like a Razzie Award plus an Oscar. So. <laughs> no way. My other one was good. I didn't have any questions that I disliked, but I will go with. I think the most difficult was which two sharks do I get to keep as a pet? Okay. Like that's the fair hardest enough. one to answer, but it's not a bad question. All right. That's fair. That's Ellie's first technical L, even though she'll combat it and she'll, she won't. Um, I've definitely She's, won like four. So. She's right to combat it. Okay. Yeah. She always talks about her wins, never her losses. See, I talk I'm about my losses. They, they're sticking together. <laughs> I know. it is. Catherine, where can we catch your stuff? Uh, once again, thanks for coming on. Plug your Instagram, your, your, your field school, anything you want. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Dr. Catmac. Uh, there's a space between Dr. and Catmac on one of them because the other one was taken. I think it's on Twitter. But uh, I think if you search for Dr. Catherine McDonald, you will not have a hard time finding me. Um, and... You should also follow Field School if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, uh, which is the marine science field training organization that I co-founded, and uh, that's who I'm in the field with all summer long. Nice. Thank you very much again for coming on. The, I will actually say friend of the show and the True Exact Radio shark expert. You, you know, you just, yeah. It's, resident it's shark small. expert. Resident yeah. shark expert. See, Ellie, if that's why. She's a friend, then she's resident. Ellie's smarter than us, so that's why she's on this show. She's Thank you guys <laughs> so much for having me back, and thanks, Aunt Patty, for uh, helping convince them that they better bring me back. All right. And also, just for the record, we don't only have shark experts on for this. We will gladly talk to you in October, November, if you have anything new going on. So keep in touch.